You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In 1940, a pair of twin boys, only three weeks old, were put up for adoption in Ohio. Separate families adopted each boy and coincidentally named them both James, calling them Jim for short. They grew up never knowing anything about one another, but their lives were bizarrely similar. They each had a dog named Toy, and in elementary school, each was good at math, showed talent in woodshop, but struggled with spelling. But it was as they moved into adulthood that coincidences really started to pile up. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks to all the listeners who have reached out to me recently about my ongoing health problem, my idiopathic chronic pulmonary condition, especially all the folks over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts who either just joined or just, and this is so wonderful, increased their support amount. You're all spectacular, but particularly I'd like to call attention to our newest members, Eleanor, George, Edgar, Sharon, and Ms. Fragile Left. Since recording takes so long with the current state of affairs being what they are, and I figured if I don't have enough time to write and read an episode, but I want to get something out. So I took our Twins episode, our Like I Have a Mouse in My Pocket, from two years ago, mashed them up into one remix new episode, and here you go. Let's be our own built-in best friend and talk about Twins. A quick biology review. Fraternal twins occur when two eggs are separately fertilized. They're genetically distinct, basically regular siblings that just happen at the same time. Or not. There are rare circumstances called superfetation, where a woman ovulates while already pregnant, and the second egg also gets fertilized. Multiple eggs being released during ovulation can sometimes result in heteropaternal superfecundation, meaning the eggs were fertilized by different men's sperm, causing fraternal twins with different fathers. Identical twins occur when a fertilized egg splits, creating two zygotes with the same cells. The splitting ovum usually produces identical twins, but if the split comes after about one week of development, it can result in mirror image twins. Conjoined twins, what we used to call Siamese twins, can result from eggs that split most of the way, but not completely. Twins account for 1.5% of all pregnancies, or 3% of the population. The rate of twinning has risen 50% in the last 20 years. And there are a number of factors that make twins more likely, like fertility therapy, advanced age, heredity, number of previous pregnancies, and race, with African women having the highest incidence of twins and Asian women the lowest. Twins have always been of great interest to scientists. 
There's simply no better way to test variable versus control than to have two people with identical DNA. Identical twins share all of their genes, while fraternal twins only share 50%. If a trait is more common among identical twins than fraternal twins, it suggests genetic factors are at work. Twin studies are the only real way of doing natural experiments in humans, says Tim Spector, a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. By studying twins, you can learn a great deal about what makes us tick, what makes us different, and particularly the roles of nature versus nurture that you just can't get any other way. NASA was presented with a unique opportunity in the Kelly brothers, identical twins Scott, a current astronaut, and Mark, a retired astronaut. As part of the Year in Space program, which would see Scott spend 340 days on the International Space Station, the brothers provided blood, saliva, and urine samples, as well as undergoing a battery of physical and psychological tests designed to study the effects of long-duration spaceflight on the human body. According to Dr. Spector, twin studies are currently underway in over 100 countries. Working with data and biological samples in the Twins UK registry, Spector's team has found more than 600 published papers showing a clear genetic basis for common diseases like osteoarthritis, cataracts, and even back pain. When I started in this field, I thought that only sexy diseases, such as cancer, were genetic, Spector says. Our findings changed that perception. Back on our side of the pond, the Michigan State University Twin Registry was founded in 2001 to study genetic and environmental influences on a wide range of psychiatric and medical disorders. One of their more surprising findings is that many eating disorders, such as anorexia, may not be wholly blamed on societal pressure, but may actually have a genetic component to them. Because of twin studies, says co-director Kelly Klump, we now know that genes account for the same amount of variability in eating disorders as they do in schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. We would never have known that without twin studies. On the topic of body fat, an LSU study by Claude Beauchard in 1990 overfed a dozen young male twins by 1,000 calories a day for three months. Lightweights have been doing that for the last 19 months. Although every participant gained weight, the amount of weight, and more importantly for the study, fat varied considerably from between 9 and 29 pounds, or 4 to 13 kilos. Twins tended to gain a similar amount of weight and in the same places as each other, but each pair differed from the other pairs in the test. While some twin studies, like the year in space, are famous, others are infamous. If you're worried where this is going, don't be. We're not talking about Joseph Mengele or the Russian conjoined twins Masha and Dasha. They were in the episode I cribbed this script from. But you're not wrong to be cautious. Twin studies helped create the thinking and even the word eugenics. Francis Galton, a half-cousin of Charles Darwin, was one of the first people to recognize the value of twins to study inherited traits. 
In his 1875 paper, The History of Twins, Galton used twins to estimate the relative effects of nature versus nurture, a term he's credited with coining. Unfortunately, his firm belief that intelligence is a matter of nature only led him to become a vocal proponent of the idea that, quote, a highly gifted race of men, end quote, could be produced through selective breeding and that unsuitable people should be prevented from reproducing. The word eugenics came up a lot during the Nuremberg trials, for example, in case you didn't already know what adherence to this idea got up to. More recently, in 2003, a psychology professor at the University of Virginia reviewed the research on the heritability of IQ. He noticed most of the studies that declared IQ as genetic involved twins from middle-class backgrounds. When he looked at twins in poorer families, he found that the IQs of identical twins varied just as much as the IQs of fraternal twins. In other words, the impact of growing up poor can overwhelm a child's natural intelligence. Bonus fact, the trope of the evil twin can be traced as far back as 300 BCE to the Zervanite branch of Zoroastrianism, the world's oldest continuously observed religion. Of all the things inherent to and special about twins, one of the most fascinating is twin language. There's no shortage of videos online of pairs of toddlers having animated conversations in their own language. If you want to bust out your Latin, and I always do, it's cryptophasia, a form of idioglossia, an idiosyncratic language invented and spoken by only one person or a very small number of people. It was a struggle not to throw myself headfirst down the idioglossia rabbit hole, Maybe some other day. Twin speak, or even sibling speak, has existed for as long as human language, but has only been seriously studied in the past few decades, not only to determine how the languages develop, but to see if speaking a twin language could hamper a child's ability to learn their parents' language. The reason twins are more likely than other sibling pairs to create their own language is far less interesting than the idea of psychic phenomena. Twins spend a lot of time together, and they're at the same developmental stage. They unconsciously work together to build their language by imitating and pretending to understand one another, reinforcing use of the language. This is said to weaken their incentive to learn to speak with anyone else, because they already have someone they can talk to. Some researchers advocate treating cryptophagia as early as possible. According to Oxford neuropsychologist Dorothy Bishop, twins often get less intervention from speech therapists than non-twins. People often assume that it's normal for twins to have a funny language, and so they don't get proper assessment and diagnosis. And then, when they are identified, they're often treated together as a unit, and so each only gets half the attention of the professionals working with them. When doctors first began examining cryptophasic children, they discovered that the language isn't created out of nothing, but it's made up of mispronounced words they've heard or references that only work inside their family. It's usually not even a proper language at all. 
According to Karen Thorpe, a psychologist with Queensland University of Technology, you can think of it like conversations between married couples where words are invented and abbreviated or restricted codes are used because full explanations are redundant. That actually happens around here. Well, except it's Futurama and Letterkenny quotes, but otherwise the principle's the same. Every so often, though, an actual full-blown language does develop, complete with syntax and totally independent of the language or languages spoken in the home. The syntax of a true twin language doesn't arrive from mistakes made while learning the family language. It's similar to the syntax seen in deaf children who create their own sign language when not taught to sign. This syntax could give us a potential insight into the nature of language and mankind's first language, says linguist Peter Baker. Twin languages play fast and loose with word order, putting subject, verb, object, wherever, but always putting the most important part first, which makes sense. Negation, making something negative, is used as the first or last word of the statement, regardless of how the parental language handles negation. It's almost like a Spanish question mark, letting you know where the sentence is going. Verbs aren't conjugated. Go is go, regardless of if it's attached to I, he, she, us, or them. There are also no pronouns like he, she, us, or them. Only proper nouns. There is also no way to locate things in time and space. Everything just is. If you're a fan of Tom Scott's language series on YouTube, he did some in the past year, and especially if you're not familiar with him, check out Fantastic Features We Don't Have in the English Language. I'll put a link in the show notes. If I forget, or you want to tell me what you thought about it, hit me up on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, and hey, if you're feeling froggy, I'm starting to use a TikTok for my voiceover business, and that's just Moxie LaBouche. Now, most children stop using private languages on their own or with minimal intervention, which is good, according to psychologists, because the longer they practice cryptophagia, the worse they do in tests later. If you remember nothing else I ever say, remember that correlation does not equal causation. Cryptophagia could be a symptom of an underlying handicap, and that's the cause of the low test scores. This simple structured language is fine for two or three people, but once there are more people to talk to or more things to talk about, you're going to need some features, unambiguous ways to distinguish between subject and object. In the twin situation, these can be dispensed with, but not in languages in which it is necessary to refer to events outside the direct situation. So do twin languages really offer insight into mankind's first language, then? Could a primitive society have functioned as a cohesive unit with a language that can only refer to what is seen at that moment? That's what linguists are studying. But UC Santa Barbara's Bernard Comrie adds the asterisk that this research into the infancy of spoken language is still in its infancy itself. First, we were told that Creole languages, that is, a distinct language that develops from two or more other languages, would provide us with insight into first language. Then, when that didn't pan out, 
interest shifted to deaf sign language, also with mixed results. I guess twin language will be the next thing. It's not an easy scientific road to hoe, though. Twin languages come and go quickly as the children develop, hearing their parents' language much more than their twin language. They might keep speaking their twin language if they are very isolated, like two people in a Nell situation, or that Russian family that lived alone for 40 years. But we'll file that idea under grossly unethical and probably illegal to study. Not that it hasn't been tried. Herodotus tells us what is considered to be the very first psychological experiment, where Pharaoh—oh, God, look at this name— Pharaoh Semeticus I, in the 6th century BCE, wanted to know if the capacity for speech was innate to humans, and beyond that, what would their default language be? He ordered two infants to be raised by a shepherd hermit who was forbidden to speak in their presence. After two years, the children began to speak on their own. The word that they used most often was the Phrygian word for bread. Thus, the pharaoh concluded that the capacity for speech is innate and the natural language of humans is Phrygian. Similar experiments were conducted by Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II in the 12th century, who ordered children to be raised by caretakers forbidden to speak to them. And again, it happened in the 15th century when James I of Scotland ordered children raised exclusively by a deaf-mute woman. And it was repeated again in the 16th century by Mughal Indian Emperor Akbar and others. Not a great et al. here. I shouldn't have to tell you that these were all based on dubious methodology and soaking in confirmation bias. A slightly less terrible test was done in the 20th century by British ethologist or animal behavior scientist William H. Thorpe who raised birds in isolation to determine what songs are innate to them. One of the best-known cases of a negative impact from cryptophagia is the Kennedy sisters of San Diego, Grace and Virginia, or Poto and Cabango, as they called each other. They created a media whirlwind in the 1970s when it was reported that they only spoke their twin language to the complete exclusion of English at the rather advanced age of six. Twin girls invent own language, gibberish talking twins, like a Martian, the headlines read. Here is a clip of the girls speaking, and sadly this is the very best audio I could find. Grace and Virginia suffered from apparent seizures as infants, leading their parents to conclude that the girls had been left mentally handicapped. Their parents opted to keep them inside for the most part, away from other children, leaving them mostly in the care of their laconic grandmother, who often just left them to their own devices. They seem like the next big thing in language creation studies, but on closer examination, it was discovered that, like most cryptophasics, the girls were just speaking very bad English, and in this case also very bad German, the languages spoken at home. And to twist the knife counterclockwise, 
When scientists tried to use the girls' words to converse with them, the girls couldn't stop laughing but otherwise never responded. Grace and Virginia were also cleared of their parents mislabeling them as intellectually handicapped. Both were found to have relatively normal IQs, or as much good as an IQ test is anyway, which is very little, but that's another show. The girls eventually underwent speech therapy and learned regular English, though their language skills were a bit stunted, even into adulthood. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You remember when I used to read reviews in the mid-roll? Pepperidge Farm remembers. Well, I've actually got some to read. Over on Apple Podcast, Anna Test says, Satisfies my inner nerd. I only just started listening to Moxie, and I'm so impressed with the quality of the content. Definitely in my top five fave podcasts now, which is a feat because I really only listen to true crime. Moxie's voice is so lovely to listen to, and her humor and wide array of knowledge are on point. Sometimes I really feel like these reviews are so glowing, and it's so self-serving for me to read them that I want to hire another VO or another podcaster to do them for me. But uh, that requires pre-planning, not a strong area for me. Over on Podchaser.com, which is like the IMDb of podcasts, Verna Powell says, Love this podcast. First podcast I ever listened to, and now I'm hooked. Started from the beginning and just listened to the last episode posted today. My whole family started listening with me, and my nine-year-old daughter loves it. And my husband, who claimed to hate podcasts, suggested we listen to this last week when we were driving back from vacation. Moxie does an amazing job with this podcast. Highly recommend to anyone and everyone. Thank you, Moxie, for making my work from home a little less boring. And thank you, Verna, and thank you, Anna Test, and everyone who has left reviews for the show and for the book. Yeah, that Your Brain on Facts book that exists. The audiobook of which, I swear to God, is coming. Y'all don't know what I've been through if I had done this myself. Like, as a self-publisher, this would have been done six weeks in. Here we are a year later. But on the book review side of things, I present the greatest review that could possibly be left for this book. Or any book, really. From D.A. Clinkenbeard. Five stars. Great book. It is interesting, well-researched, and easy to read. Wait for it, that was just the headline. It took me this long to review because, rather than look at my smartphone, I've been reading this while on the toilet. The book is great. Buy it. 
You won't regret it unless your legs fall asleep. Again, full of interesting facts and tidbits. When you have a party again, you'll be able to astound your friends with esoteric knowledge. That's just what I'm going for, D.A. Clinkenbeard. Thank you very much, and uh, do remember to stretch periodically. Don't want you getting deep vein thrombosis from a marathon session. So if you think you can top D.A. Clinkenbeard's review of the Your Brain on Facts book, the gauntlet is down. The challenge is set before you. But of course, the best way to help any author, any podcaster, any creator is to share what they do with your family and friends, whether that's one-on-one or on your social media. In fact, what would be really great is if you hear a fact that really catches your brain in this week's episode, post it on your social media. Just say, you know, just learned on your brain on facts, yada, yada, yada. If you wanted to do a video, that'd be twice as good. And I'll share it on the main social media. And don't forget to join us over in the Brainiacs break room and the Your Brain on Facts subreddit, both of which you can reach with an easy click from yourbrainonfacts.com slash social. If you're looking for an immersive escape, look no further than the sponsor for today's show, the City of Ghosts podcast. City of Ghosts is an audio drama about wealth, corruption, entrenched power, and the ghosts of New York City. It's a supernatural neo-noir thriller starring Bridget Lundy Payne of Netflix's Atypical as a misanthropic information broker who makes her living buying and selling the dirty secrets of the city's elite. With themes like personal identity, immigration, city corruption, mental health, queer characters, and the hidden pasts that define us all. City of Ghosts is made with and by a diverse team and features immersive cinematic sound design and a lush score. And the best part is, City of Ghosts is starting now. You can get in on the ground floor. No worry about getting lost if you jump in in media rays or trying to go back to episode one and catch up. Episode one's happening right now. Look up City of Ghosts on your favorite podcast player or go to cityofghostspodcast.com. All right, my lovely listeners, show of hands if you like to read. Okay, now keep them up if you like true crime and dramatic crime. All right, that's a good number of people. Then you'll be excited to hear about the sponsor for today's show, Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. It is a tensely clever first-person psychological thriller. That means it's from the point of view of the serial killer, so it should go over well with fans of Dexter. And can you believe they're bringing it back after the way they ended it the first time? Though this protagonist, like Dexter, is fictional, the settings and scenarios are firmly rooted in reality. Follow this strange twist on the hero's journey from disorganized criminal to criminal mastermind. Available in both a physical copy and ebook, it's free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Crazy is as crazy does. The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. A brief review of the biology refresher from the top of the show. Identical twins are always the same gender. Why am I making a point of this? Because I have in my original notes here that I met two moms of twins at a podcast conference who have had people ask them multiple times if their twins were the same gender. 
This is why we need sex ed in the schools. We're going to talk about conjoined twins, and you'll notice that I do not refer to them as Siamese twins. That term comes from the famous sideshow performers Chang and Ang Bunker, who were born in Siam, but that is now Thailand. And while the word is not offensive per se, it just doesn't apply to anyone anymore, so people have stopped using it. Conjoined twins, which can occur either when an ovum splits in completely, or possibly when two embryos collide back together immediately after, occur once every half million live births or so, according to the University of Minnesota. About 70% of conjoined twins are female, though I couldn't find any reasons or theories at least for why. 40 to 60% of these births are stillborn, with 35% surviving only the first day. The overall survival rate is less than one in four. Often, one twin will have birth defects that are not compatible with life and endanger the stronger twin. Conjoined twins are physically connected to one another at some point on their bodies and are referred to by that place of joining. Brace yourselves as I once again wallow in my medical Latin. By the way, if you know anybody who works in a hospital system that produces their own continuing education, or any e-learning companies with medical clients, send them to moxielabouche.com. I would love to talk voiceovers. The most common conjoinments are thoracopagus, that is heart, liver, and intestines, omphalopagus, liver, biliary tree, intestine, pygopagus, spine, rectum, genitourinary tract, ischiopagus, pelvis, liver, intestine, or genitourinary tract, and craniopagus, the brain and meninges. 75% are joined at the chest or upper abdomen, 23% joined at the hips, legs, or genitalia, and 2% joined at the head. If the twins have separate organs, chances for separation surgery are markedly better than if they share the organs. As a rule, conjoined twins that share a heart cannot be separated. Worldwide, only about 250 separation surgeries have been successful, meaning at least one twin survived long-term, according to the American Pediatric Surgical Association. The surgical separation success rate has improved over the years, and about 75% of surgical separations result in at least one twin surviving. The process begins long before the procedure with tests and scans and things like tissue expanders, balloons inserted under the skin and slowly filled with saline or air to stretch the skin so there'll be enough of it to cover the areas where the other twin's body used to be. It requires a whole hospital full of specialists to separate conjoined twins, from general surgeons, plastic and reconstructive surgeons, neurosurgeons, neonatologists, cardiologists, advanced practice nurses, and maternal fetal medicine specialists, et al. In fact, the longest surgery of all time was a conjoined twin separation. Separation surgeries often last an entire day. This one required 103 hours. If they started at 8 a.m. on a Monday, they finished the surgery 3 p.m. Thursday. In 2001, a team of 20 doctors at Singapore General Hospital worked in shifts to separate Ganja and Jamuna 
11-month-old twins conjoined at the head. Not only did the girls share a cranial cavity, their brains were partially fused. Each tiny brain had hundreds of itty-bitty blood vessels, each of which had to be traced and identified as belonging to one or the other girl. Their brains were not only connected, they were wrapped around each other like a helix. Plus, each twin's skull needed to be reshaped and added to using a blend of bone material and Gore-Tex fiber. Both babies survived the surgery, but sadly, Ganja died of meningitis at age 7, but Jumana has gone on to live a healthy and happy life. In reading about the twins separated in 2001, I came across another pair of conjoined twins, also named Ganja and Jamuna. This pair was born in West Bengal in 1970. The pairing of the names actually makes a lot of sense when you learn that the Ganja and Jamuna are sacred rivers. The sisters are Ischioamphalopagus tripus, meaning joined from the abdomen and pelvis. They have two hearts and four arms, but share a set of kidneys, a liver, and a single reproductive tract. Between them, they have three legs, the third being a non-functional fusion of two legs with nine toes, which they keep hidden under clothing. They can stand, but they can't walk, and tend to crawl on their hands and feet, earning them the show name The Spider Girls. Managed by their uncle while on the road with the Dreamland Circus, they exhibit themselves by lying on a charpoy bed, talking to the spectators who come to look at them. They actually earn a good living, making about $6 an hour, compared to the average wage of India that equates to $0.40 an hour. Ganja and Jamuna have two ration cards for subsidized grain, though they eat from the same plate. They cast two votes, but they were refused a joint bank account. They also share a husband, a carnival worker, 20 years their senior. When asked which he loves more, he replies, I love both equally. In 1993, the twins had a daughter via cesarean section, but sadly the baby only lived a few hours. Though the sisters would like to have children, doctors fear pregnancy would endanger their lives. Doctors have offered them separation, repeatedly, but they're not interested. They feel it would be against God's will, it would be too great of a risk, and it would put them out of a job. We are happy as we are. The family will starve if we are separated. Sometimes in conjoined twinning, one fetus doesn't develop the same or becomes essentially embedded in the other one. And in that case, you have a parasitic twin, the smaller twin not being capable of surviving on its own. Not all parasitic twins are, as you might have seen in pictures, a torso with arms and legs hanging out of someone else's stomach. The condition can also be called fetus in fetu. It's more rare than conjoined twinning and twice as likely to happen in males. Again, no theories given. The question of how a parasitic twin might develop is one that currently has no answer. To say that the fetuses in question are only partially developed is still overstating things. They're usually little more than a ball of tissue with maybe one or two recognizable body parts. One school of thought holds that fetus in fetu is a complete misnomer. 
adherents contend that the alien tissue is not in fact a fetus at all, but a form of tumor, a teratoma specifically. A teratoma, also known as a dermoid cyst, is a sort of highly advanced tumor that can develop human skin, sweat glands, hair, and even teeth. Hey, this is October after all. Some believe that, left long enough, a teratoma could become advanced enough to develop primitive organs. There have only been about 90 verified cases in the medical record. One reason fetus in fetu is so rare is that the condition is antithetical to full-term development. Usually, both twins will die in utero from the strain of sharing a placenta. Take little Almanjan Namatalev of Kazakhstan, who reported to his family at age 7 abdominal pain and a feeling like something was moving inside him. By the way, the squeamish among you who've made it this far, you might want to jump 30 a couple of times and think of kittens or something. His doctors thought he had a large cyst that needed to be removed, but once they got in there, they discovered one of the most advanced cases of fetus in fetu ever seen. Alam John's fetus had a head, four limbs, hands, fingernails, hair, and a distinctly human, if badly misshapen, face. Fetus in fetu, when it is discovered, is usually found in children, but one man lived 36 years carrying his fetal twin in his abdomen. Sanju Bhagat lived his whole life with a bulging stomach, constantly ridiculed by people in his village for looking nine months pregnant. Little did they know, huh? Fetus in fetu is usually discovered after the parasitic twin grows so large that it causes discomfort to the host. In Bhagat's case, he began having trouble breathing because the mass was pushing up against his diaphragm. In June of 1999, Bhagat was rushed to a hospital in Mumbai for emergency surgery. According to Dr. A.J. Mehta, basically the tumor was so big that it was pressing on his diaphragm and that's why he was very breathless. Because of the sheer size of the tumor, it makes it difficult to operate. We anticipated a lot of problems. While operating on Bhagat, Mehta saw something he had never encountered. As the doctor cut deeper into Bhagat's abdomen, gallons of fluid spilled out. To my surprise and horror, I could shake hands with somebody inside. It was a bit shocking for me. One unnamed doctor interviewed by ABC News described what she saw that day in the operating room. The surgeon just put his hand inside, and he said there was a lot of bones inside. First one limb came out, then another limb came out. Some limbs, hair, limbs, jaws. There was no placenta inside Bhagat. The enveloped parasitic twin had connected directly to his blood supply. Immediately after the surgery, his pain and difficulty breathing disappeared, and he recovered immediately. But according to Bhagat, people in the village still tease him about it. It is October as I record this spooky season, a good time to go back and rewatch, say, American Horror Story, which my Facebook memories pointed out to me. I started watching for the first time this week, some years back, specifically Freak Show. Friggin' clown, man. When that installment dovetails very nicely in a famous quasi-parasitic twin story. 
1895, the Boston Post published an article titled The Wonders of Modern Science that presented astonished readers with reports from the Royal Scientific Society documenting the existence of marvels and monsters hitherto believed imaginary. Edward Mordrake was a handsome, intelligent English nobleman with a talent for music and a peerage to inherit. But there was a catch. With all of his blessings came a terrible curse. Opposite his handsome face, on the back of his skull, was a grotesque face. Edward Mordrake was constantly plagued by this devil twin, as he called it, which kept him up all night, whispering, quote, such things as they only speak of in hell. He begged his doctors to remove the face, but they didn't dare try. He asked them to simply bash it in, anything to silence it. It was never heard by anyone else, but it whispered to Edward all night, a dark passenger that could never be satisfied. At age 23, after living in seclusion for years, Edward Mordrake committed suicide, leaving behind a note ordering the evil face be destroyed after his death, lest it continue its dreadful whispering in my grave. This macabre story is just that. It's a story. A complete, regular old work of fiction. But but I've seen a photograph of his head. Yet sadly, no, unfortunately you haven't. You've seen a photo of a wax model of the legendary head, Madame Tussauds style. Don't feel bad for being fooled. It's a really good model. The story of the cursed nobleman was so widely accepted as fact that his condition appeared in the 1896 Medical Encyclopedia, co-authored by two respected physicians. Since they recounted the original newspaper story in full without any additional details, it gave an air of authority to the tale of Edward Mordrake. Um, actually, there's a picture of his mummified head on a stand. Yeah, I hate to puncture your dreams, but that's papier-mâché. It looks great, but the artist who made it has gone on record stating it was made entirely for entertainment purposes only. One of the weirdest, as well as most melancholy stories of human deformity, is that of Edward Mordrake, said to have been heir to one of the noblest peerages in England. He never claimed the title, however, and committed suicide in his 23rd year. He lived in complete seclusion, refusing the visits even of the members of his own family. He was a young man of fine attainments, a profound scholar, and a musician of rare ability. His figure was remarkable for its grace, and his face, that is to say, his natural face, was that of Antonius. But upon the back of his head was another face, that of a beautiful girl, lovely as a dream, hideous as a devil. If nothing else, there should be one detail in there that raises all the red flags, the claim that the face was that of a girl. What did I say at the top? Conjoined twins are always identical twins, and identical twins are always the same gender. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today, though we'll finish up with the story of the two gyms. Their lives were so unbelievably similar, if you saw it in a movie, you'd throw your popcorn at the screen. Both gyms had married women named Linda, divorced them, and married women named Betty, 
They each had sons named James Allen. Both smoked, drove a Chevrolet, held security-based jobs, and even vacationed at the exact same Florida beach. Though one assumes not at the same time. After being reunited at age 37, they took part in a study at the University of Minnesota, which showed that their medical histories, personality tests, and even brainwave tests were almost identical. Remember, you can always find the source notes and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.